Rethinking Leadership podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, and in this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of leading change, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. I'm interested in exploring how we lead disruptive change in a way that has a positive benefit for employees, business, and society. In other words, how do we be more human and relational in our leadership and make a difference? This week's guest has some great tips on leading teams in a more collaborative and relational way. More on that in a moment, but if you'd like more information on leading teams through fast-paced change, you can download a report from my website at www.jude.team. Rich Horth is Operations Director for ADECO, a large recruitment agency with 80 offices throughout the UK. Rich talks about the great resignation, how that creates a candidate-led market and what that means for employers. With the highest number of vacancies ever seen, he talks about the importance for organisations to look after their employees and keep people engaged. He shares some of the things they do at ADECO to make work more fun. Have a listen. Hi Rich, thanks for joining me today. You're very welcome, thanks for having me. Can you tell us who you are and what you do please? Of course, yeah. So uh, my name is Rich Horth. I am an operations director for ADECO. Um, I've been with the business for 12 years now, and I've been in this post for uh, two years, so right at the start of the um, pandemic. Have I already dated it by saying that now? <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, so for those, I'm sure everybody has heard of ADECO, but for those who haven't or perhaps don't really fully appreciate what it is that you you do what what are the key um what are the key challenges that ADECO are facing oh god well I'd say now right now so ADECO we are a very large corporate recruiter uh the scope we have around 80 offices spread across the UK and I look after about a third of the patch for ADECO um the biggest challenge has got to be the candidate market at the moment um we're in a, what we call a candidate-led market so there are very few candidates available and looking for work, and there are loads and loads of opportunities. So um, my challenge is getting to people to view that as not a challenge, but adapt to it in a different way. So um, actually, in this market, it's the candidate has the power. There's so much opportunity out there. We need to be finding good people and then taking them out to businesses. Um, the flip side of that would have been a recession market where um, there are fewer and fewer job opportunities but more unemployment and more candidates available. So in those instances, you probably switch to a client-led focus where you're trying to network with these businesses because you're really confident you're going to find good candidates. Now, if you work that method, you, you'll end up wasting time. So the, the focus really needs to be, let's find good people, find out what really motivates them, and then take them out to the marketplace. So everyone's talking about the great resignation at the moment. Are you are you experiencing that? Are you seeing that there are large volumes of people coming who are available for work and also that there are lots of vacancies? Uh, so not yet. We're seeing, we're seeing the highest level of vacancies on record. Uh, so I think July uh, earlier this year was the first time it came around when they said, right, it's the first time in a week one million jobs have been posted. Um, the candidate market hasn't loosened up as much. So we were expecting when furlough came to an end that there'd be more candidates available. We saw a little bit of relaxation, but you've got um, the pandemic coupled with Brexit reducing the available candidates. So um, those two things combined mean it really still is candidate short. Um, for me, that the great resignation is probably 
people having confidence in the market again and starting to think about other job job opportunities out there. So um, who can predict what's actually going to happen? But if it were to, for me to say, I'd say it would be a, uh, a short spike in candidates being available, but settle down fairly quickly once people kind of really, they've done that move and it's almost back to normal again. We've got confidence. We know what's happening. So in terms of, um, from a leadership point of view, are you seeing a shortfall in skills or people overskilled? Are they underskilled? What are you seeing there? Uh, well, so the, the markets that we work in uh, tends to be what could be branded as general staffing, but it, but it means that in each location we work in what's buoyant in that market. So just kind of set the scene. We probably work on jobs, the majority of our jobs, are around 30 to 35k and under mark. So it's the um, um, unskilled to semi-skilled labour force that we work in. And I'd say what we're seeing is that even at the very low end of unskilled workers, these candidates now are um, a really high demand. So you've got big employers like Amazon offering uh, now up to £14 an hour for unskilled warehouse work. They're giving £1,000 golden handshakes and so that candidate pool is just being sucked up everywhere. Um, the, the, the huge shortage was uh, in the year was in drivers. Um, and, and now what they've done to combat that is they're offering uh, retraining and reskilling. Um, so people can go into driving work. They can get paid. I think one of the stats was some drivers are getting paid more than solicitors. Uh, and you can go in without your driving license and be retrained into that market. Um, sorry, I went off on a tangent and I've forgotten what the original question was around. <laughs> it was so have I, but it was fine because it was it was it was interesting to hear to hear those those thoughts as well. Um I know that you you a deco are on the great places to work list. Um what why do you think you made that list? I know that's a very big question, but what it what are you seeing that a deco do within their own organization that makes it a great mm. place to work? So it's a tricky one because so I, I genuinely think that ADECO is a great place to work. First thing is we talk about it all the time um, and we're constantly uh, talking about engagement, how we create these cultures. Um, we do do, we, we, we um, have a survey company, I think it's called PECOM, that goes out once a month or once a quarter to the business and we really listen to that. So that will go out to every person uh, in every single role and it goes through um basic kind of engagement questions and, and things that um, uh, people think is great about our business, people that um, think it's not so great about our business, it gives them a form to suggest things to improve. But the most important thing is we really do listen to that. So every single manager has a sit-down session to go through all that data and look at where right, we're scoring really highly or we're scoring poorly. I mean, you just you spot trends in that that you'd expect. So I think if you would ask anyone, are they being paid enough? They'd say no. So we look at that and we go, right, okay, what are we going to do about recognition? Um, but then we come up with tangible actions and then we communicate that back to the business. So if we have changed uh, how we do that, I mean, say the league tables in our business is often an emotive subject, we'll then communicate back to say, we are listening, here you go. This is what we've changed. We're in fact, talking about we are listening, we have a dedicated mailbox for we are listening. So when anyone has any suggestions for the business, they can email this inbox, they can keep it anonymous, or they can put a name to it. And um, our managing director, Shelley, so my boss, starts off every management meeting looking at that list and working through it. And as a leadership team, we decide, okay, has that got legs? Has it not got legs? 
And regardless, we communicate back to whoever's come up with a suggestion um, about that. But I mean, making it a great place to work, I think it comes down to then the individual teams. Um, and, and I think our culture is special. Um, I'm a bit ignorant because I've only ever worked for a decade. So I've been in 12 years, years since university. But we see so many people leave the business and then come back. Um, and of course, it's great messaging for our brand, but they tell us that actually the culture we've got is a really special culture that we've created. What makes it special, do you think? Mm. It, so in fact, I went on a course recently where we had to say what's the most important thing there. And I reckon where I, I landed after all of the, trying to look at all the clever uh, clever analogies and scenarios, I finished on just fun. And I think it's when you have fun at work, people uh, enjoy it, they bond well. Um, and that's something I'm passionate about. In fact, I was telling you just before we started, but I was in Birmingham on Friday. We've just done a kind of quarterly uh, incentive uh, night out for my entire team because we'd hit the budget. So we went go-karting, we went to Laser Quest, and we went out for drinks afterwards. And it's those events that I think you should never undervalue because when people have fun together, they collaborate more, they know each other, um, and, it, and it genuinely does become a better place to work. And I think it's, it's interesting because that, you know, we need, we need a lot more fun at the moment, don't we? I mean, yeah. you know, we are living, we are still living through a pandemic and life, life and work has not been a lot of fun for a lot of people in the last couple of years. So I think, I think that's so important. I think we often underestimate the importance of, of fun and, and also actually how that generates deeper levels of trust and connection and builds relationships. And I mean, humor is a great connector. For, mm. for people and um, I'm just wondering about thinking um, about other organizations that you're recruiting for mm. like, what what do you think that they need to be doing culturally to attract the best the best talent well so culturally sharing those benefits it often I do think in this market it comes down to uh, paying people what they're worth and you get into this really obvious salary argument where um, like someone local is paying X pounds per hour, what can we pay? But then maybe culturally sharing um, feedback from colleagues, looking at um, showing great, you know, I've got an employer that I work with that uh, I think they've got something like 50% of their workforce with over 25 years worth of service. And so sharing those great stories about, well, what, why is it, why is it such a great place to work? What do you do? What what team night nights out do you have? And, tapping into that cabinet pool that you think will be engaged by that. I mean, we will often work with employers around what is their EVP? What makes them special? How do we find those candidates? And quite often the first piece of EVP being? Sorry, employee value proposition. So what make, what actually is um, almost their brand to a candidate? Um, and that starts right from kind of the advertising uh, writing process. What you typically see if, if you've got uh, maybe an HR manager in control of recruitment is that you'll have a really bog standard job specification that goes out and that is posted on all the major UK job boards. And we're not in that world anymore where someone's going on and reading through every single bullet point on a job spec. Actually, we need to go out and grab attention. First thing is to remember most of these job ads are written, uh, sorry, are read on a mobile phone. So are you thinking about how people are scanning through it? Uh, we have really, really short attention spans, so you'll probably read four sentences from that job advert. So how do you make yours stand out? And actually, rather switching it from what 
do what do you need to have for the job switch it to well what can we give you so are we offering flexible working hours are we offering uh free fruit around the office uh every friday uh teas and coffees are important to people you wouldn't believe but have we got these facilities on site what's the what's the, the flexible working policy and that's i mean that's a massive one at the moment is everyone talking around the flexibility i think that's trust um uh, in our business we've gone for a um a three two so three days in the office two days from home but for me it comes for trust we always said that we're a sales business we can't work from home and actually we've proven in the pandemic we can yeah. um but there has to be a blend especially in our organization where it's a sales organization i do think offices are really important um so people go in and get that support get that culture and bounce off each other so the other alternative is you go 100% flexibility and everyone's working from home it's not flexible either so it's almost as bad as just doing in the office so i think uh, for me um it, it's it's led by the role of course there are some roles where absolutely somebody um, could work from home um and be completely self sufficient and be really effective from home but i think a blend is always going to be better where people have that ability to be in the office and not from the office um and then i still think for sales organizations being in the office is really important for that fun aspect as well it's it's about the balance isn't it because there's there's real benefit of coming together to collaborate face to face um somebody was telling me the other day that when they were working on a on a spreadsheet they actually found it easier to work online because everybody could see the spreadsheet at the same time and everyone could work on it and so i think it's about finding using the tools that we've got to to then find the best way of working and i think that balance between sometimes you just need to get your head down at home without the distractions of other people and other times you need to be able to collaborate and come together and you can't you can't really put a price on the face to face relationships that get connected that are very different from when we meet people um on online but i i think it's really interesting what you said is it, it's ultimately about trust isn't it it's about recognizing that there are different ways of working for you just sorry sorry to cut you off there but i just ideas are springing to my head as you say that i think that being in the office you can't underestimate the value of those conversations that you have with people as you're walking around the office and also the um i think for our mental well-being being in the office can actually be better um something that i struggled with is when we first went to lockdown feeling like uh so we run teams in our organization I've got to have a green tick on all of the time. I've got to be available, ready to chat, and almost feel guilty if I want to go downstairs to make a coffee that my computer's not 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 on green. But who's going to look at that and think that actually I'm not being productive, I'm not working? Whereas the reality is, you're in the office. You you might stretch legs, walk around, go and speak to another colleague. You're not. It's almost dangerous being at home because you feel like you have to be accountable for every moment that you're switched in the business. So that that trust is really important. So it's something that. actually I've proactively discouraged where I've got managers in my team coming to me to say oh it looks like they logged in on this time or I can see that actually they were on a orange tick which means they've not been sat at their desk so what that person we've got a if we've got a problem with the output fine let's manage that management conversation but you've got to demonstrate that you trust that person otherwise it's it's not healthy for anyone well and I think again that comes down to different ways of working because I know for me in the summer I I quite like to sit in the garden and make my sales calls. Mm. So I'm not going to be in front of a laptop at that time, but that doesn't mean that I'm not 
I'm not working and you know I run my own business so nobody's nobody's watching me other than me but um but I think it, it comes down to again it, it is that trust isn't it it's so crucial whether you're in the office or or not it's so crucial that we trust that people are doing doing the the job but coming coming then to um like working with uh, unskilled, the unskilled workforce, and particularly people who are new into jobs, are, are you finding that that trust is an issue with the unskilled roles or where people are new to to their jobs? Mm. So, I mean, a lot of the uh, unskilled roles need to be done on site, so haven't had the opportunity to work from home. So, for, if you're a warehouse operative, you're going to struggle to drive your forklift at mm. home and, and do that. Well, so, you've got to be in the office. Um, and actually, I, I don't know where I'd sit with with um, those just entering. Maybe it's their first job. Onboarding someone to your business completely remotely is really difficult to give. And I've spoken to all sorts of employees. We, we went on forums sharing things that they were doing, like. Um, they do a meet the team day where they have these virtual meetings and they're going to see everybody that they've done virtual buddies with people so that they're, they've always got someone that they can call and log in with. But just that experience of joining the business, uh, I think is going to be better face to face and in that environment to get the culture. And again, internally at Deco, we would say to begin with, you're in the office more often um, until a point where we say, right, okay, let's look at that, that flexibility. And that's not so much from a trust aspect, that's more a, an experience and engagement to the organization um, maybe as we go further up through the experience chain that's not so important and of course you've got businesses that have always done that that are global so that they've got somebody you might be the only person for that business based in the uk from home um, yeah is that answer the question as you saying around unskilled people having that yeah. flexibility um, yeah definitely it, do, you, do you think there's a risk that um if we are working flexibly, that people are less engaged and therefore are less likely to commit to the organisation and therefore does that generate more churn in an organisation? That's a really interesting point. Uh, yeah, I'd go with it. I'd go with maybe and it depends, of course, because there's not going to be a cut or dry, but I could totally see how that happens where, um, yeah, you, you're not going into the office. Have you really got that buy into the business? You're remote. You can um, do things from home. Um, I guess it's how it's done and how much uh, buy in you've got from that person. I, I certainly don't think that it's a, a definite. I think you really can get that loyalty and buy in, um, but it's how you do it virtually and remote. I think about some of the things that we did straight away. Um, I think the first lockdown was, was almost panic mode. Luckily, we were set up as a business where everybody did have uh, laptops and were able to, from the next day, switch them on from home, we're okay, we can go. Um, there were some organisations, a really huge business that I worked with in Nottingham, for example, and none of their guys had laptops. So the first week, they were shopping, trolling them out the back of their uh, business, trying to get everyone set up at home. Um, but we, we discovered right at the start, it was panic modes, right? And then I reckon, give it maybe two weeks, three months, even a month, we said, okay, how... We're accepting that this is going to be for the foreseeable. How can we drive this engagement and keep people bought in? Um, and one of the things for me was visibility. So I started doing a, um, a webinar every Friday with all of my team where I see them. Um, I, I did make everyone put their cameras on, which I think is controversial. People saying they're right to have their cameras on or not. But I think bottom line, if you've not got your camera on, you're not engaged because we're human and it's so easy to get distracted by all the electronics around us. So, cameras on see them 
um, give key updates, whatever you need to do, but then have a bit of a fun time on a Friday. So we would do quizzes, we would do uh, uh, all sorts of fun games virtually to, to keep the wheels in motion. And I think that had a big impact on, as an organisation, feeling like, right, we're carrying on, we're getting through this. Because um, people certainly at that time needed reassurance as well about what was going to happen. There were so many uh, questions people were scared for their jobs, especially in the recruitment industry where we saw so many people closing up shop, making redundancies. We um, managed to avoid most of that. Um, and that was an opportunity to reassure people that actually we're doing strategy, um, which of course as a leader is important that you, everyone knows where you're steering the ship. Do you think that, um, I mean, over the, over the, the last couple of years with, with the pandemic, there've been lots of great stories of people that have had, you know, done the face-to-face, -face, that online face-to-face -face through cameras, but having more fun and generating different ways of building relationships. And, and I think we've had to actively seek connection where perhaps we may have just taken it for granted before in the office. How do you think that shapes the way that we need to lead, lead in the future where we're going to have more of a hybrid mix of working from home and in the office? Well, I think that hybrid actually could bring the benefits of both ones because something that I've heard talked about a lot is speaking to your colleagues when they're at home, in their home offices, you've almost got a relationship on a bit of a deeper level because you've seen the dog in the background or the child running or you said you saw, I've got a snowboard on my wall, right? You've got, you get a connection that I don't think you'd always have. Um, mm. I, I never would have known that you were a snowboarder unless exactly. we had this conversation online and I can see your snowboards on the wall behind. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so your teams get to know you more um, intimately than, than they have done before. They've been in different locations around the house. You've, you've had that insight into each other's lives and perhaps the frequency at which you've seen everybody has increased. So um, I look after um, 17 offices uh, across the UK and I'd, I'd try and get round them once every maybe three months in reality that I'd actually go and see them physically. Whereas I'm doing this call now where I see everybody every single week. And I think that's really, um, I, I've really enjoyed it. I think the teams have benefited from that as well. I hope, well, I hope I'd say that. Um, so I think we'd want to keep that and then also add in the, the benefits of seeing each other face to face that um, one of the things that I really struggle with is uh, I do a monthly meeting for my management team. Doing that virtually is so difficult to keep everybody engaged and, uh, and going and just sitting down for any length of time. Whereas when you're in a room leading a meeting, you can spot those that are engaged. All right, do we need to have a break here? Do we need to switch up and do some sort of activity together? Um, and it's been the same with uh, training courses. I run a um, training development course in the business called Top Talent, which is for our high-performing consultants that wish to be managers of the future. And I tried to make that a virtual course, and it just wasn't right. Um, so it, we cancelled it after a few sessions and waited until we could do that face-to-face. -face. And the feedback since that's gone back to face-to-face is, oh my God, we love this. We Yes, this needs to be face-to-face, because -face. you can see if people are learning, if they're getting it. Um, so extrapolate that to any scenario someone's starting a business when you're there face to face you can really check in with that person see how they're doing whether or not they're bought in that is so much more difficult virtually um so exciting isn't it for a business if we can keep some of this stuff going where you get the insight and the intimacy from the virtual relationships blended with face to face then i, I think that's the perfect hybrid yeah I, I think so too and i think there's there's real 
benefits that you know I used to go down to to London for, for sales meetings it's unlikely that I'm going to do that now and that would take a whole day and cost me about 200 pounds whereas now I hop on zoom for an hour and 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 have a similar conversation and um and I think that you know that works for the person I'm meeting as well because it saves them having to come out of the office and meet me somewhere else or so I think I think I think it is really important that we start to think about what's the best way of doing things is it face to face or is it online and there's real value in in both do you think that requires us to be more conscious as leaders to really think through what's the best medium what's the best way of doing something because i think in the past we've perhaps just blindly done things without without thinking yeah. through yeah. Do you think it requires us to be more thoughtful as leaders absolutely yeah and so um yeah the, really similar examples of you go to London because that's where you go to that meeting you're almost going through the processes of it for the sake of it so yeah making that conscious decision is this meeting one where we've got a set measurables that we need to get through that actually you could run on an agenda virtually and be just as productive okay let's do that one virtually but maybe that sales meeting actually is about people getting together um I remember being a consultant and going to London and feeling really special that I was able to get on that train get to London go to that meeting go to the head office where it's all sparkly and nice and see my colleagues face to face. And maybe the most important thing about that day wasn't actually the content of the meeting or the training or whatever I was going for, but it was more the seeing people and, and boosting my motivation. So something like that, we want to continue doing face to face and it's worth that investment um, because of the teams it's built and the camaraderie it builds. Um, but yeah, absolutely, there's meetings where that is not needed. Uh, and both from a cost perspective, environmental, all of those things, we can go virtual. And that's really interesting because what you know, what I just heard you say then was that sometimes it's not the content of the meeting, it's the motivation. And I think that's really fascinating that there's a danger that if we do things virtually because we can, that actually we're we're not really valuing the importance of motivating ourselves, our teams, our employees. And I think this is where it gets really tricky, isn't it? Is that we can easily fall into a pattern and say, well, this is working, but then it's over the longer term that it might not be working. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do a manager's meeting and I reckon half the value in that is it's almost an agony aunt session where they all see each other and they have a, a good old moan about what's going well, what's not going well, and, and relating and, and seeing each other. And I think afterwards they feel so much better you can't you can't facilitate that virtually really uh, you check in and you have conversations but it's the face-to-face um yeah I definitely wouldn't want to start doing that mm. what kind of leader are you Rich mm. <laughs> um oh god that's really hard when you put on the spot what would I I would say that I am passionate and energetic as a leader uh decisive probably make make decisions too quickly in some instances yeah, but I, I think the, the the bit that I hope people would say about me, um, and this is really cliche, but I am passionate and I genuinely care about the teams. And I probably focus more on that and the motivations than necessarily what the output is. It's, it's really easy to um, hit with that stick around where we are versus targets and what's happening. And I think one of the best things that I've done during the pandemic is really checking with people on how they're doing because I think if people are bought in motivated and engaged you get so much out of them mm. um so much more out of them than, than managing through fear um in fact it's something that I look after managers that manage managers or managers manage teams 
And I think their job, if you're a good manager or a good leader in that, is you're almost managing motivation. So checking in, are those teams in the most motivated state that they could be? Um, and fixing it where they're not in the most motivated state that they, they could be. So focusing more on their, their individuals as part of that team to get them gelling. Especially in my business, you can really see when you walk into an office, you can, you, I bet before even looking at the figures or how well that office is doing, you get a feel straight away when you walk in that team, you, you sense the buzz, you sense the fun. And I can tell you straight away if that team's successful or not um, by seeing yeah. that environment. Yeah, and and a lot of the work that I do, I mean, I, I explained earlier, I work I work with a herd of horses, and a lot of what I'm looking at is the nonverbal communication, and that you instantly sense whether whether a team is engaged or not, whether they're motivated or not. You sometimes you can walk into a meeting room and feel that buzz, and you just know that you're going to meet the targets or sign the contract or whatever it is. And then there are other times where you can just feel that everybody's had their life sucked out of them. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and you know, and it, and some, you know, and I hear a lot of organizations say it feels relentless. Like, what would your advice be to, to those people who feel like they're in an organization where it feels relentless? I don't know. Well, it can be really difficult because I think that um, that feeling is led from the top uh, and that would definitely trickle down through whatever management meeting and it, and it's almost repeated. I think as a leader, you aspire to be like and mirror whoever the great leaders in your organization are. So it's really challenging to change that culture if it's if it's bled all the way through from the top. Um, but I think you I think everyone is accountable for that meeting and that feeling. And I I think and I, I share stories with colleagues. I think sometimes we're just too serious sometimes in meetings. I think um real range, I meet with clients every single day. And there'll be the client meetings where we go on and we're so professional and so serious. And I do question why. And the second you, and you've got to be really careful with it, haven't you? Because some organisations, it's complete no-no, but I might use a bit of humour and it's almost like, oh, the tensions have now got in this meeting. We're actually enjoying working with each other. And, and you, you can only benefit from that because people will spend with you, people will work with you if they like you and they get on well with you. So I think just, just loosing it up now, Maybe that's not the best advice. Use humour in meetings, but do it carefully and uh, everyone's more productive and enjoys it more. Well, I think it's about being more human again, isn't it? I mean, I yes. think, and again, it's it's in balance. It's not using humour for the sake of it, but it's about including humour and not excluding it because it is a fundamental part of what motivates us as, as human beings, isn't it? Um, final question for you, Rich. What keeps you awake at night? Well, I, I think I'm a... <laughs> I'm a natural warrior, so loads of things. I turn around and I've, I've done so many mindfulness courses to work out that actually that's not a good thing to do to carry on carry on worrying things. So I, I would try then to redo my neuroplasticity and think about something um, that isn't to do with work. But what and what keeps me up at night? What am I what am I thinking about? I'm trying to think now of something that's really interesting that's going to make this interview finish really positively. I can't. I think I think the, the natural thing is I. I the stuff that keeps me up at night is I do worry about my people because you're always worrying about what others think and where their heads are. When, but, but in reality, I know that's not a helpful thing to do because you can't change that. So um, that's something, honestly, that does keep me up at night, but it's something that I would try to not keep me up at night. Well, and it's, you know, what I hear with that is it's because you care about the people and, it, and it, you care about them having the resources and being motivated and, and engaged enough to, to get the job done. Mm, thank you that's a kind way of putting it 
Rich, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun. It's easy to think that people leave their job for more money, but all the research shows that people leave because of their manager. Not every organisation can pay the top salaries, so I'm glad Rich offered some alternatives that show people that the organisation cares about them. Ultimately, if we know the job market is candidate-led and people are looking for more purpose and a greater sense of enjoyment in their role, every manager needs to consider how they can create that for their team. We don't need to keep people in jobs that they don't want to be in, so sometimes people moving on can be an opportunity to do things differently. Who in your team is disengaged and what might you do differently either to re-engage them or to reorganise the way you lead your team? I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Please share it with someone else so we can collectively inspire each other to rethink leadership in the world. If you'd like more information on leading teams through fast-paced change, you can download a report from www.jude.team. That's it for this week. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature. Until next week, keep leading and I'll be back soon with another interview on Rethinking Leadership.